Psalm chapter 40. Psalm 40. This morning we will uh, do a, a, a bit of a um, combination in the sermon <clears throat> as we are just, the Lord's brought together this little uh, series in Psalms, just kind of help us where we are and where we're living life. Uh, but today, just want to take an opportunity to address and consider the cultural climate that we are in. As we've been watching the news, and, and you are aware, uh, this the intense turmoil that's boiled over in communities all over the country. Uh, the events of our culture have brought the reality of social injustice in the form of racism. Uh, and these are concepts that need discussion, and they need our attention. So we, as white people... As we look around this room, we're white, we need to be honest with that, and we think white. We need to listen. We need to listen to gain understanding and not be quick with a perspective on what's happening. Our response as white people is to give a thought and an opinion real fast. And I'd like to put before you that that's part of the problem. When when people feel like we don't have an ear, but we have, a, we have a rebuttal, we have a quick comment, we have a perspective, we have a, why don't you do this? That's actually part of the problem. It's why the black community around us feels that they don't have any opportunity to explain themselves. We're prone to be dismissive, and that's not biblical either. It reveals more of our comfort level as majority culture, as majority Americans. And, and as Christians, we need to be able to have understanding because we have the answer as Christians, not as conservative white America. As Christians, we have the answer and we need to shine with a particular light of that answer to a lost and hurting and dark world. I hope to share a little bit of my story uh, just to help form a biblical response as to what is going on. But there, Psalm 40, uh, again, will help capture for us what, what I think the Lord wants us to do. Uh, the title for today is, is Superior Delight to Settle the Restless Heart. I think the turmoil that we see around us is the result of a restless heart. And that's what the church of Jesus Christ has the answer to. And that's what we find, again, in the Psalm of David, in Psalm 40, there's, there's an answer to that restlessness. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. 
burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love or, and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken them and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who sneak to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Father, I ask that you would, by the, the reading of your word and the preaching of your word and the giving of perspective, you would ignite in our hearts a love and a passion for you that would be the mission and purpose of our lives, and we would carry that to a lost and dying world. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I, I think just everybody's experience goes into uh, when we read the Psalms, that's why the Psalms are so helpful for us. They're accessible because we, whatever uh, perspective or experience we're coming from, we find attention in this. You know, when we read particularly about enemies and David's enemies, we have to put ourselves in a, a context to imagine that. But there are others that would read this and immediately know what enemies feel like. But I think from this psalm, there is, a, there is a cry that all of us as believers need to have, and that is, great is the Lord. But the great is the Lord involves walking that out like God addresses us. He has an open ear. He's listening. And he's delivering. He's showing up in David's context. He's showing up in his heart. And there's difference about his life because God is there. That's the mission of the church, to be God who is there with us. This morning I have, and as we are looking, uh, considering the culture that we are in and everything that's been going on with the protests and, and looting and everything, I have good news and I have bad news about that. I'll start with the good news. There will be a day when racism, and prejudice and injustice and the marginalization of peoples in the world, there will be a day when it all comes to an end and it will exist no more. No more. That's the great news. Here's the bad news. It's not going to happen in this life. That's heaven. Heaven is where that ends. So we have a tension that we're always going to be around. 
We're always going to have a tension of life today in the now, waiting for the not yet. When the new heavens and the new earth are established, the brokenness and oppression, uh, oppression and sorrow and anger of this world will be around until Jesus returns. He's the one that settles it. See, what part of the, the anger is uh, when people can't get elected officials or governing officials or courts to vote in their favor or uh, uh, agree with them that perpetuates the frustration. But it's going to be an endless cycle of trying to do that because we know in this life that's never going to be achieved, especially when it, it becomes that we have to depend on man to bring that about. Because Jesus says he is the one. But as the church... We are to be the signpost and lantern of the future reality of heavenly reconciliation and heavenly restoration when all things, all turmoil and sin is settled and peace reigns in the kingdom of God. We're to live that. We're to live that in a unique way that shines forth to others. Like David said, I will proclaim and tell of them that they are more than can be told. I missed it. It was not there. He says other people are going to see it. They're going to believe too. So when people see us living this out, they are to believe what we're believing too. And through the Holy Spirit's presence, we are to live toward one another in the church and outside the church with the very power of heaven itself. That's what we live in us and then and connects us to one another and that's what we shine in a lost and hurting world. And we work toward justice within society as a sign of God's authority and God's righteousness as well as his mercy. And as Christians, we look on the, tor- the turmoil of our culture, uh, we should be looking on it with understanding. We understand why it's happening. Because we understand sin, we understand righteousness, we understand flesh, we understand spirit, we have understanding. We should understand why riots happen. Because uh, understanding spiritual and naturally, systemic injustice is woven throughout our culture and across the globe. And it's reached a boiling point. We should also understand the demand of protesters longing for heavenly power. Give us justice now. So we look at that and say, what is, are those really, are they effective? Are they good? Yeah, to a certain extent they are. But I think where they drop off, the church should step in. But we, we see and hear a world wanting heaven and, and reaching out for it and trying to grasp for it, and it's not there. But we as the church should be living for something that helps them understand that heaven is really what they're asking for and the reconciliation that they have is, 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 that's necessary is with God first so we can walk together as brother and sister in Christ. And we should understand the true battle that there, the war is not with flesh and blood. The war is in the heart with flesh and spirit and sin and righteousness and that's in every heart. We all want freedom from the oppression of sin, so our feet are set on the rock, like David said, and it's the rock of Christ. And the church should live out what the answer is, redemption in the heart that affects true change and life direction. We see restless hearts in a fallen and broken world, and the antidote to that restless heart is the superior delight of Jesus Christ. 
Here's the big caption. The church is to live out of salvation that attracts the lost to taste the joy of heaven. We got to make sure we're tasting that joy. We have to make sure we're living that out and we're glad and happy in God. And our joy should result in worship. Great is our God. There's a worshipness uh, to that phrase. But it should not deflect or diminish our responsibility to stand for the righteousness of God through social justice and through mercy and understanding where people are. So let's just take a, a, little, a little bit of a temperature with the church in the cultural climate. You know, there's a difference between thermostats and thermometers. Thermometers reflect the temperature. Thermostats set the temperature. Too often, the church is a thermometer just reflecting what's going on in the culture rather than a thermostat setting a temperature that looks like God, feels like God, and makes way for the gospel to come into hearts. As, as the church, we are to set a climate. And we need to set that climate the way that Jesus wants us to set it. The Pharisees, he scolded because they were setting the wrong temperature. They were setting a temperature of performance. You got to do all these nitpicky details. You got to climb over these walls. And Jesus said, you're missing the point and you're causing these people to miss God. And that's worse. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind God, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Look, we we have categories. Everybody has categories where we do that. We strain from a gnat and we're neglecting this huge thing over here that we think nobody else is paying attention to. We have blind spots. All of us do. Jesus reminded them of what the prophet Micah said. To God's people and how to set the climate to shine for the Lord. Micah 6 verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus' words too justice and mercy and faithfulness. Let's consider walking these three things out for us as a church. These are, this is kind of what we need to be looking toward and forward and, and, and to. The first is humility. And I think the humility and faithfulness is interwoven in what Micah, putting Micah and Jesus' words together is all Jesus' words. But I think the humility and faithfulness uh, exist together. And I think that for us, as, in, as white America, I think that begins with our honesty with what we don't understand about the limited opportunities for those in the black community. Now, our response is usually to go to statistics to prove that everybody has the same opportunity. But statistics don't tell the whole story. And this... My, my experience with this, uh, back years ago in serving across the lake in New Orleans, I was in youth ministry for 15 years over there, and I was part of the volunteer with Next Generation Ministries, Pastor Steve Robinson over at Church of the King. Uh, didn't start it, but, but took it over in its infancy. I teamed up with him going to high schools, doing pizza clubs, and sharing the gospel. And it was marvelous. It was awesome. And I, I connected with a guy, uh, Kurt Allen, who came a couple years ago, uh, 
dear friend of mine and couldn't be, I, I don't know if there's anything that's just, Jesus is the only thing we have in common. He is a black man, dark. But we grew in our friendship. I brought him in for four years and we, we would drive around. I'd drive him to assembly after assembly after assembly in New Orleans, going to all these schools because he had a story that was compelling and, and the students needed to hear it. He's been to jail, all that stuff. He was a gangster. He did everything. Everything that people, whites and blacks, Hispanics, every ethnicity wants to achieve, the gangster uh, motif, I guess. I don't know, the, the, the banner. He did it. So he had instant credibility. The first year we brought him in, uh, we went to Carver High School in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. And just there, I felt the Lord stir me to go start a Next Generation Club at that school. I had been a Next Generation uh, volunteer for 11 years at that point, and I had been in, I think, eight different schools, just doing clubs, nothing like what I felt the Lord stir. So I went, showed up at the school, and they looked at me really strangely because they could see the color of my skin, and you want to do what here? I'd like to bring pizza every Thursday and give it away and have a mentoring club to help students make wise choices. And they said, you want to do what here? And I repeated it again. They were skeptical. I said, I, I, I want to do this. I feel the Lord stirring me to do it. I'm going to do it. And from that point, began, I ended up doing it for four years. The only reason I stopped because we moved over here to start the church. And in my four years at Carver High School, I, I began to understand the limited opportunities. And when they are pressed with their limited opportunities so much, the, the young men growing up in the black community, they, they see the only out, the only out is to sell drugs or to rap or to be an athlete. That's the only out to them of the streets. That's the only way to escape the streets. Because most of these young men in their teenage years, they grow up under the mentality they're going to be in jail or dead by the age of 21. We don't know that pressure. We don't know it. So I asked Kurt, my buddy, I said, Kurt, what do I do? I'm a white dude from the suburbs. I got a dad in my life who loves me wonderfully. I, what, he said, lead with that. I said, are you serious? He said, yep. He said, they'll appreciate your honesty. So I went in there and I said, I'm white and I'm from the suburbs. I have no idea what it's like to put my head down on a pillow at night wondering if some bullet's going to come through the window or the wall. I have no idea what that's like. And I said, you know, I'm here to give you a perspective uh, and really that perspective is making wise choices from a biblical perspective. And we can all agree on that biblical perspective. I said, but I need to learn from you. And from that moment, I began to learn. And I, I, I then, my relationship grew with them. They accepted me. I was coming, uh, I was picking several of them up, coming, bringing them to youth group and youth activities and stuff. I love what it did to our white kids in the youth group. It was like, this is great. I love this. Because it's supposed to be a picture of all of, we should, all these ethnicities should be, connecting. You know, there's only one race. There's only one race. All of us are image bearers of God. That's the only race. There's prejudices, 
because of the differences of melanin that we see in our skin. Look, I, I have close to zero melanin in my skin, in my body. My DNA just does not hold it, I guess. I don't know. God chose to give Kurt all the melanin and me none. We are all image bearers of God. But as I was learning from them and in their community, when when I kept on coming, I gained more respect. When I I was listening, I then realized I needed to hesitate. And I, I don't... I don't throw, I mean, it's been seven years we've been a church, and this is the first time you're hearing this story if you didn't know me previously. I don't throw it out there as like, oh yeah, I was in the black community, I understand. Because I'm hesitant. I'm hesitant to describe it, I'm hesitant to, to capture understanding. And that's what happened. I, I, I can't, I'm hesitant with a counterpoint rebuttal or... I'm hesitant on social media. Please be hesitant on social media across the board. Social media is miserable for any type of discourse and conversation. And what we need is conversations, but if we're just having these sound bites on social media that obviously they're always misinterpreted, always, because when you're caught on something, oh, you you, you misunderstood what I said, then say it better, or how about this, don't say it, wait, Social media is miserable for these types of things. And look, and, and on both sides, both sides, people just want to rant, 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 rant. Well, you scream so much, it's like nobody's listening anymore. Now, social media, now the, the thing, and my, my kids have been pressured by their black friends to respond. If you don't respond, your silence is agreement, your silence is racism. That's not an appropriate response because we're not having a conversation. Because action, oh, it's been this way too long. People need to act. All right? Nobody's given a list of what we should do. If Jesus does. That's why I think the church has a, a role in this moving forward. And we have been neglectful as a church, uh, at nation, uh, nationally, for the most part. You know, and, and as we listen in our humility, we have to recognize that acknowledging how someone feels doesn't mean we agree with them. And we're afraid of that. We're afraid of looking at somebody else saying, I understand that your life has been hard. Because we're afraid of, of putting this uh, approval upon them that, because, well, because, oh, well, I disagree with the looting. So does most of the black community. They understand that's not helping their cause. They understand it's not going in. They understand that. But if we're going to sit back on a couch and just lob rebuttals. We have to make sure that, are we really humble? Because it doesn't solve anything, uh, approaching anything for a solution. When we have agreement and acknowledge what we don't know, it puts us in better agreement to move forward. You know, quick comments don't convey open ears. And we need to have open ears. Because the, uh, the lack of open ears with the black community has been complaining about for a long time. We need to respond with mercy and kindness. Here's what I do. I make it a point to tell every black person that I cross paths with, hello. See, when I go into Sam's, 
I really don't want to talk to anybody. I'm the type of shopper that goes to get my stuff and I want to leave. So I'm sorry if you catch me in Sam's in the future. I really, I'll talk. It's okay. You don't have to like, oh, he doesn't want to say anybody. I'll leave. My wife and I went to Sam's yesterday morning. And I noticed the black men were looking for me to tell them hi. They were looking at me first. We don't know what that feels like. When one of the times that Kurt was in town, we're driving around, it was April, had the windows down in the car, it was nice uh, spring days, and so it was cool, didn't need the air conditioner, and we were talking about this, this the conversations that we would have as we would drive around, I was asking him questions, and he was giving perspective, uh, and Kurt's been always helpful uh, with this because, and I think he's a great tutor for us, because he, is, he acknowledges there is racism, there's systemic uh, racism that has Limited myriads of opportunities for the black community. But he also will tell the black community, we own responsibility for how we behave. And we need to make sure that we're not uh, burning bridges. So he does both. He's very equitable in that. But one time we were driving around and I was like, all right, you, cops pay more attention to you. He said, absolutely. I, what do you mean? He said, watch this. He said, well, you haven't recognized, but I have, is that we're, whenever we, this week, as we've been riding around, whenever we pass a cop, they look at me. Are you serious? I didn't notice it. You know what? Next time we passed a cop, I noticed. Two guys in a patrol car stared him down as we drove by. I have no idea what that feels like. Now, looking at statistics doesn't help me understand that pressure. And that's why we need to be careful with just spouting off statistics or finding a black person that agrees with our perspective. That's dangerous. That's not helpful. We need to be able to listen. And we need to be able to cultivate relationships where we have opportunities to listen. And then it looks like justice. Doing justice is engaging with the responsibility to stand and work toward God's righteousness as creator and king. We want to stand for the marginalized and the oppressed in society. This, is, this means ethnic minorities. This means uh, socioeconomic prejudices, the neglected, the abused, the unborn, the enslaved. There's a lot of justice that we can do. There's just... There's one being forced to the, to the forefront right now, and I'm understanding why, but the, but the church's responsibility is to make sure that all of the marginalized are stood up for, and, and there's an advocate of righteousness for them. And doing social justice, understand, I, I, I thought this for a long time, uh, and that's this, I needed to be corrected. Doing social justice is not fighting for socialism or communism. Doing social justice is not saying, okay, we're just going to hand out checks to everybody. That's not what this means. It means standing for the quality of the personhood of every image bearer of God. And we do that in ways that communicate God's heart. So, uh, a few years ago at Northlake, 
where I'm a part-time Bible teacher over there. Uh, one of the students through the core, I, one of the things I did in my class is I have to ask Pastor Jeff time. And they get to write a, an anonymous question on a, a card and give it to me, and I spend the class time answering the questions. So it became something that people look forward to. I had this one guy, uh, one young black man, and he just was trying to figure out if I was a racist or not. And so every question, I knew it was his question, and I would call him out, and he'd laugh, the whole class would laugh, uh, but he was trying to figure out if I was racist. And I just finally asked him, why don't you just put on there, are you a racist? I mean, you just, because he, he couldn't tell if my answers were genuine or not, I guess. I'm not sure. But this is his question. Do you see color? All right. That's a good question. In terms of diversity, absolutely. In terms of equality, no. But diversity we have to be diverse. And I think part of our, our white culture is that we don't understand people who don't think like us. And that's, that's the systemic racism that's going on. A systemic prejudice that why, if they just are like responded and acted like us, then everything would be fine. It wouldn't. And God, in his, in his uh, creative image-bearing, he gives a diversity of melanin as a demonstration of his glory because he's multifaceted. He doesn't just make one. He makes us all in his image. Marches have a place, but as a church, I'm hoping in the, in the months to come to stoke the fire of mercy ministry in our church uh, to make a lasting impact in this community. A lasting impact in this community. There's a little uh, award in that back hutch back there. Uh, we have been awarded by the city of Covington the best church of 2020. <laughs> because of our community involvement. I'm thankful. I really am. We had to pay for the, the award, but I wanted it here. <laughs> We'll give you the award, but you've got to pay for the trophy. All right. This is why. That's an answer to prayer. Because we have prayed since we've been here. We have prayed to have an effect on this community, and people would know who we are, despite all the cars we've had to drive on Sunday mornings. We would, have, we would have an effect. So it's an answer to prayer. We have had an effect. People know us, and we are respectable. That is awesome. But that just means, I, I, don't, I don't want that to appear to be like, all right, we're known. No, there's more. There's more. And if you've been a part of the church for a long time, remember we, we, uh, we were reaching out to the West 30s uh, pretty consistently several years ago. I want to stoke that back up. The Groves, I just want to stoke that back up. Ultimately, do, doing justice and mercy is to make the gospel shine for the salvation of rebels. So God's, God will reign in hearts and minds. We do this for the gospel. That's why we do this. We stand with other image bearers. We, we stand and, and pray for human trafficking to end, for abortion to end. We pray for, for the black community to feel loved. We pray for those things. Why? Because everybody's an image bearer. And so it looks like we, we, we have a great country that we have freedom of religion. So we are going to tease this out a little bit, a little bit of a rabbit trail. 
Remember after 9-11, there was a mosque uh, that wanted to, uh, or a group of people that wanted to build a mosque near Ground Zero in Manhattan? And there was pretty big uproar about that. You know, as, as Americans who fight for, and Christians do this, Christians can stand and say, in a country, we want to fight for everybody to be able to worship, even if they're worshiping the wrong thing. When that came out, I remember thinking, it was not unlawful for them to try to get a permit and put a mosque there. It was insensitive. But as white America, we think our sensitivities are law-abiding things. And so when our sensitivity is ruptured, we think a law has been broken. We've got to be able to think differently. And we've got to be able to listen. We have to be able to have a song of superior delight. Now I could take, I know I've been in, it's about a half an hour now, but give me about 10 more minutes. As the, as the church walks humbly doing justice and mercy, a song rises to God and the world can hear it. And that's what the song needs to be. It's a song that illuminates purpose and life that, that transcends cultural climates. Because we live for something beyond here. The song of the church reveals an ultimate peace and security in God along. It's a song of joy that attracts the lost. And we say, come. I'd like to tell this, uh, this song of joy through, through the, the impact of Augustine of Hippo. St. Augustine. The, the song of superior delight has been passed down through the generations in large part to the formulation of doctrine by Augustine. He was a smart dude. And he's largely responsible for how we enjoy and understand God today. The doctrines that God used him to synthesize. Many theologians have said it went from Jesus to Paul to Augustine in church history. And then uh, several years later with Luther and Calvin in the, in the Reformation. Luther and Calvin actually picked up on many concepts from Augustine and, and ran with those in the Reformation. But there's a bit of irony with Augustine that pertains to our cultural climate. See, the pictures that we have of Augustine have him as a white man. There's one there, if you put the next one up, Diane. Um, the next one, he's in the middle. Augustine was from Africa, from North Africa. And I'm pretty sure that he was a Berber ethnically. His mom was, his dad may have been Roman, so maybe lighter, but his mom was dark. And Augustine was a black man. But white Europe painted him as a white man. And I love the fact that many of the doctrines that we hold so dearly to us and our understanding of God and our approach to God and our sight of the glory of God come from a black man. I love it. But there is a, all through history, that's why Jesus as a white man, Jesus wasn't white, y'all. He was middle brown. So whenever we look at these pictures of like the blonde haired blue-eyed Jesus, that's not him. Isaiah said he was, he was unstately. He was Ugly. Somebody that people would hide their children's eyes from. Isaiah 53, go read it. That's our Savior, who is so beautiful now. 
Because he's beautiful in our hearts and we see his glory. That's why. So Augustine. Oh, this is the earliest uh, picture of him, probably about 100 years after he died. And he's darker, you can see that. But most of them try to go back with the white ones and add black to make him darker. But Augustine was treated the same way that our black community feels treated. And the foundational doctrines for us give us a, a glimpse into the glory of God. So let me tell you about Augustine. He was born November 13th, a 354. Old dude, very old dude. Middle class farmer in Thagast in northern Africa today, presently Algeria. His mother Monica was a Christian. His father was not a Christian uh, until right before his death when Augustine was 16. Uh, he was educated in rhetoric. Augustine was educated to be a, a smooth talking dude in Carthage. I don't know if you can see on the map where these places are. He was there until he was 16. Uh, right after that, 17, 18 years old, he announced to his mother that he had become a Manichaean uh, uh, following a teaching of a Persian gentleman who uh, just wanted a, a source of wisdom to unlock everything. So it followed from the Gnostics from the first century. Uh, when he was 18, he took a, mist a mistress and had a son. He did not marry her because she was of a different social class. So he had his own prejudices that were acceptable. He wanted to live uh, mostly as a single man. He just, he was a, a, he was a scoundrel. He was a scoundrel all about lust and sex. He loved himself. <laughs> uh, when, he went to Rome when he was 18 and began teaching, but the students were so unruly that he went, he moved up north, uh, northern Italy to Milan uh, and became a teacher of rhetoric for the entire town. His Monica, uh, Monica, his mom, came to meet him eventually. Uh, he had his mistress and his son with him, but then sent his mistress back. He's never named, never names his mistress. We don't know her name in all of his writings. And he would talk about his love for her and his devotion. She was so devoted to him that she said, I'm not going to marry again. And uh, tradition says that she joined a monastery in northern Africa and never married. Uh, but she sent, he sends uh, his mistress back to Africa when his mom came. But he developed in Milan a friendship with the bishop of Milan, Ambrose. He liked Ambrose because he was smart. You know, uh, Augustine tried reading the Bible when he was young, but it didn't make any sense to him, and it just, it was too ordinary. It was too lackluster. It just didn't, it didn't catch his imagination like he wanted. Uh, Ambrose helped the scriptures come alive for Augustine. Uh, during this time, his voice was weirded out, so he went to a villa right outside of Milan for vocal rest and healing. But in that time, he went out to a garden right outside the villa, He's there for several months. He goes outside and he and his friend are, are talking about what Ambrose has been preaching about. Their discussions with Ambrose and they're talking about this. And, and Augustine goes out from the, the house and in, in the garden. He actually went and found another place away from his friend because he couldn't control his crying. He just kept on crying to the point that he was hitting himself in the face. He was beating himself. He was having a war within himself, and the war was this. God, are you going to be as much fun and joy for me as the lust 
and the carousing and the drinking has been. We hear that today. There's nothing new under the sun. We hear that from people today. God, are you going to be enough for me? And he tells of this experience when he goes and immediately he, he hears this child's voice. Take it and read. Take it and read. He looks around. He's thinking, um, is that from a song? Why, why did I hear that? He goes over. He opens up the scriptures to whatever was there. And Romans 13 says, stop pursuing everything that's not satisfying. Believe. Trust God. And in that moment, he said God came over him with a, uh, just, he, he, it quelled all doubts that God would be there for him and be enough. So what that did for him was say, all right, God, if you're going to be enough, I'm going to pursue you as my superior delight. I'm going to pursue you for my happiness and my gladness and my joy. And he did that. And he did it in a, in a way to help us understand that God really is there. But in that garden, under a fig tree, he got saved. He was baptized on Easter of that year in 387 with his best friend and his son. His mother, he tells his mother that he has gotten saved. He tried to tell her one time other that he was saved, and she said, no, you're not. She, Monica was. She could have a, another biography done of her. It's, it's just she's a, a woman of faith. She said, no, you're not. Well, he finally tells her, and she realizes, oh, yes, this is, this is saving work. Uh, she died a few months later as if her work on earth was done. Just a few months later. Augustine goes back to Carthage in North Africa to set up a monastery. He traveled to the town of Hippo on the coast uh, to recruit a man for the monastery. But while he was there, people had begun to know who he was. He was writing some different tracts and stuff. Uh, they pressed him to be their priest in the church. You could do that then. Same thing happened to Ambrose in Milan. It's like... Uh, we want you to be our priest. Come over here. And they, they stayed. He took a vow. Of course, he was, in a, he was looking to build the monastery, but he took a vow uh, into the priesthood and was ordained. Four years later, he became the bishop there at Hippo, and he also established the monastery there. He went from being too smart for Christianity to giving simplicity to complex thoughts and theology for his people and for us. Uh, most of his people were illiterate. So here's what he would do. This is, this is why I think it proves that he was black. He would preach with a jingle. This is Peter Brown, his biographer says this, a white guy. A jingle of rhymed phrases and puns. You know what he did? He rapped his sermons to his people. I'm jealous of that. That would be really cool. I can't do that. Part of his role as bishop, bishop was to ensure justice in Hippo. He visited prisons. He settled disputes. And he wrote copious books. He wrote a lot addressing controversy. Controversy within the church, but also globally. He lived through turmoil. He, he lived through what we're feeling as well. And, and, and he understood how to take the temperature of culture as well as set the climate on God. He lived during the fall of Rome in 410. He was bishop at Hippo when Rome fell in 410 to the Goths. And he wrote the city of God as a response to that, to say, this is not our home. We have heaven awaiting us, so let's make sure that we're looking and living for the right place. 
Augustine sang a song of transcendent superior joy found in God alone that by growing in knowledge would increase the experience. And that's what we, we, we feel that too. Here's what he said in his book, Confessions. He said, but what is it that I love in loving you? All, the confessions are written as one long prayer with different, just moving through his life and he prayed all of these things. He said, not material beauty, nor the splendor of time, not the radiance of the light so pleasant to our eyes, nor the sweet melodies of songs of all kinds, nor the fragrant smells, smell of flowers and ointments and spices, not manna and honey, not limbs pleasant to the embracements of flesh. Now look, going back in that list, that's usually what we look for God to give us as proof of his love. He's saying, I'm not, I love not these things when I love my God. And yet I love a certain kind of light and sound and fragrance, food and embracement of the inner man, where that light shines into my soul which no place can contain, where that sound which time cannot snatch away, where there is a fragrance which no breeze can disperse, where there is food with no eating that, which no eating can diminish, and where there is a clinging which no indulgence can break. This is what I love when I love my God. Oh, a superior joy, a superior delight. And, and I think preeminently what he gave the church is the doctrine of grace, that God really is a gracious God. His understanding of grace has been a legacy in the church and for the church, and it first started with a grace to save. He began uh, when he, he recalled when he was a child uh, he hated school. He said, and a lot of us would agree with this, why do I need one plus, why do I need to recite one plus two equals three? Identify with that. We can identify with that. He was one of us. He, he uh, in his childhood, he loved to just carouse. And there was a time where he and his friends went and decided to steal pears from somebody in their town. And they didn't steal pears because they were hungry. They stole pears because they wanted the thrill of stealing. But he understood that later on as the depth of how evil is pervasive in every human soul. And without the grace of God uh, acting upon us, we're dead in that sin, in that depravity. He also formulated a grace from God. Uh, there's a grace of God to sustain and he said this, he said, strengthen me that I may be able. Give what you command and command what you will. He understood that his desire to live a Christian life didn't come from his own self-will and working himself into it. He said, God, you want me to be obedient? Give me what you're commanding. Give me the obedience. Because left up to myself, can't have it. He was a wise man. In his monastery, he didn't allow uh, ladies to come by for visits. He was a wise man. So he, he had all of the indulgence till he was 31 when he got saved. And then from that point to the rest of his life, when he died in 430, he was celibate. Just saying, God, I want you, and I want you alone. Now, celibacy was not a requirement then. It was a choice for the clergy. And this is, this is also 200 years before Islam. So I, I wonder what he would have said to a doctrine like that because he, he wrote against the Manichees. He wrote against the Donatists. He wrote, wrote uh, against Pelagius. 
the Pelagian theory was that we are not born with original sin. And that's, that is, we sin when we, we have the original sin that gets on us the first time we sin. Augustine was saying, oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's in every, everyone. And it's so pervasive, we need the grace of God to act upon our hearts so we understand and grapple, uh, grasp to him. And he also, he also put forth a grace uh, that God gives a grace to see him. Seeing God results in enjoying God and growing in knowledge increases the love of God. Superior joy overcomes temporal lusts. So why Augustine for our cultural moment? As a church, we need to live out the joy of God in God all because of His grace and then recognize how His grace has supplied for us to be in relationship with one another. We are in relationship with one another because the dividing wall has been removed. In the temple, there was a a wall that the Gentiles couldn't cross. It was only the Jews that could cross in there. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 said that dividing wall is gone. That's racism. And there were Jews saying, oh, no, no, you're a Gentile. You can't come in here. And they were claiming, oh, you'll you'll make everything impure. No, they were saying, we don't like your kind. Get out. Stay back. Paul says the dividing wall is gone. But as we transition to communion here, the dividing wall between our hearts and God has been removed, church. That's our hope. That's that's our humility and mercy in order to do justice because Jesus standing between us and God has taken our justice so we could be restored to him and that we could be lights of that restoration in a lost and dying world. All right, if you would.